0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Yaakov Katz about his new book, Shadow Strike Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. Yaakov Katz is the editor in chief of the Jerusalem Post. He served for close to a decade as the newspaper's military reporter and defense analyst, and was a faculty member and lecturer at Harvard University, where he taught an advanced course in journalism. Katz also served as correspondent for Jane's Defense Weekly in Israel for five years. His previous books include Weapons, Wizards, How Israel Became a High-Tech Military Superpower, which has been published in English, Hebrew, Czech, and Polish and is scheduled to come out in Chinese this year. Yakov Katz, welcome to the show. Before we begin talking about your new book, I'd like to take advantage of your expertise in journalism to hear a little bit about what's often referred to as the crisis in journalism today, both the financial crisis as well as, let's say, the political crisis of so-called fake news, and uh, the blaming of the news.
1: Well, those are two very big topics and issues that uh, overlap, of course. Uh, I think that, to your first point, there's no question, no hiding the fact that the news industry today definitely uh, print publications like the one that I edit, the Jerusalem Post, face a huge challenge, which is how to remain economically and financially viable at a time when print readers is dropping dramatically. Uh, It's not an easy feat and you'll find that many print legacy newspapers like the Jerusalem Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, whatever it might be, whichever country it might be, are all looking at ways to diversify. Their platforms, their products, to come up with new ways to tell stories, new platforms, and to be able to keep readers engaged and at the same time thinking of new business models. So that could be closing off your website and putting up a paywall and making people pay to even just go to your website. It could be creating premium content on your website that you have to pay for. It could be coming up with conferences. Uh, other publications other platforms so we are definitely part of that we have that debate on a daily rolling basis here at the Jerusalem Post what can we do next what can we how can we innovate how can we create something new how can we keep on engaging readers it's a challenge but it's also i think what makes what makes being in this business so interesting today is that it's so dynamic and it's changing all the time and and it's really developing and it's not just you know people tend to think and say to me oh you're the editor of a newspaper so you must sit all day and just read through pages and edit and that's just a tiny tiny maybe five percent of what i do because the rest of the time we're creating content we're creating engagement we're thinking and strategizing of new ways to do things and, and, and that's what makes this job so fascinating.
0: Well, I'm glad you think of it that way. What about the other part, the, uh, the fake news that is actually out there on the Internet, and also the, uh, the uh, use of journalists as punching bags for politicians?
1: So the second part makes me very sad. I see that in, in Israel And happening with politicians uh, ahead of the last election, there were billboards that were placed up uh, across the country by the Likud party, which is led by Benjamin Netanyahu, with pictures of leading journalists in the country and saying they will not decide for you. uh, The moment that politicians turn journalists and the media into the enemy is a direct blow at the heart and core of what a democracy is meant to stand for and how it's meant to operate and that is very concerning when i look at what's happening in in my country but i also see it globally i see it this era of populism that we live in has taken hold of other countries Uh, sometimes there's a debate did it start here did it start by president trump in the united states who knows but to me that's less of the issue the bigger issue is how do we ensure That this populist wave doesn't uh, completely transform and brainwash the public into thinking that media is the enemy. Media is, and I think the press, and the way I see it, we're meant to be the watchdog for democracy. Our job is to be critical of government, is to be critical of local councils and of municipalities. It's meant to hold them accountable. If we're not being critical, we're not doing our job. And I understand how for politicians it's very convenient to present their constituents with an, with an adversary, with an enemy. If I speak specifically about Prime Minister Netanyahu, if you look throughout his political career, he's always gained power by presenting his constituents with an enemy that they need him to protect them from. Once upon a time it was the Palestinians. Then it became the Iranians. Now it's the, Then it was the media. Now it's the police and the courts it's always changing. But instead of telling people why you need me to help make your life better, it's why you need me to help destroy some imaginary or real adversary that's on the other side. That's to that part of the question. With regards to fake news, it's out there. It's happening. On the one hand, the fact that every single person can be on Twitter, can be on Facebook, can, can open up a website, can, you know, we have citizen journalists, we have everyone's writing the dissemination of information is is astonishing compared to where we were 5 10 15 years ago but the way i look at it is that it requires of us the i would say more establishment or established media to be uh, more careful to be more responsible and and it, and there are two values that I see constantly clashing with one another to your question. The first one is accuracy and the second one is speed. And because of the nature of this game today, of the way it's played, that if you're not fast and you're not quick and you don't get the story up, you lose traffic. You're not your result on Google because of their algorithm, you won't come up high when someone searches those keywords that might appear in that article. You want to be fast. But on the other hand, you also want to be accurate, but the days of when you could take a day to, 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 to investigate or research a story, they, they don't really exist anymore because you got to move and that you're constantly seeing the clash between those two values. Now, sometimes it'll blow up in your face with crazy, fake, made up nonsense. And I think I can only speak for myself, but I think that my newspaper, we're very careful when it comes to that. But we also fall. And, and and we make mistakes. And you have to be careful. And I think everyone's making mistakes today. And there are people who are being more careful than others. But this is a huge problem. And it's something that is always on my mind, at least.
0: And that's a good segue to getting to your book. Because one way to correct the record or fill out the record is to write a real book every once in a while. And I'm glad you did in this case, Shadow Strike. Uh, so set us up. what was the shadow Strikes context? and why did you want to tell the story?
1: So uh, first of all, I wish I had the time to write more books, right I think that you' I agree with you that books is really a way to tell a story in a format that you can't you can't just do in a newspaper article, no matter how long it could be. Uh, it's to flesh it out. It's to look at it from 360 directions and angles, uh, which is something you can't always do in a news story because you don't have the time, the space, or or, or the, the place for it.
0: Uh, and one is news, and the other is history.
1: Correct. Although yeah. sometimes history is also relevant, and I think that that's what that, that's the case at least with Shadow Strike. But the story itself takes place in 2007, when in March israel's mossad which is the equivalent of uh, the cia in the united states uh launches a raid on a hotel room breaks into a hotel room essentially in vienna which was uh had been occupied by a syrian nuclear scientist he had left his computer behind they did the mossad agents didn't know that when they went into the room and they download the contents of his computer and what they discover shocks Israel and and has the potential to change the world. And that is that Syria, Bashar al-Assad, is building a nuclear reactor in northeastern Syria along the Euphrates River with help from another rogue, very dangerous country by the name of North Korea. Now, to put it into the larger and wider context for a moment, when Israel discovers this in March of 2007, Israel is just seven months A little over half a year after a bad war, what was known as the Second Lebanon War, the war of the summer of 2006 that went on for 34 days between the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed terrorist guerrilla organization in Lebanon. For 34 days, Israel tried to stop Hezbollah rocket fire and did not succeed. Hezbollah fired over 4,000 rockets in the span of that month into northern Israel. Israeli soldiers fought with Hezbollah guerrillas, and while Israel caused them damage and killed more of the Hezbollah fighters, 122 Israeli soldiers paid with their lives during that month of fighting. And Israel got, it was in deep in Lebanon, but there were many flaws and failures that were discovered during this war, from the way orders were given, to the way the battalions operated, to the way brigades maneuvered. They were rusty. They were out of shape. They weren't trained. They didn't know. They hadn't been inside their tanks in years in an operational capacity. So all of so we're after this war. There's this massive rehabilitation process that's sweeping throughout the military, the political echelon. There are protests on the streets of Jerusalem calling for the resignation of the prime minister, the defense minister, the chief of staff because of the the the, the, the outcome and the flaws and failures of that war. And now this lands on the prime minister, then at the time Ehud Olmert, this lands on his desk. A, and a potential existential threat is, is on the verge of being activated just over the border in Israel's backyard. This isn't in Pakistan, this isn't in Iran, this isn't in Iraq. This is literally just over the border. And, and it's clear from the get-go that this is something that cannot be tolerated that this changes everything. And Israel cannot allow Syria, an enemy state, just over the border, to obtain such a capability.
0: Now, um, the destruction of the nuclear reactor uh, Al-Kibar took place, as you said, back in 2007. Why was it kept secret until now?
1: Israel at the time... You know, we're jumping to the end, right? So on September 6, 2007, Israel decides to – sends its fighter jets and destroys the nuclear reactor. And and, and just important, I'll open up parentheses for a moment. Israel is the one country in the world to have done that not once but twice. 1981, Israel sent fighter jets to – outside of Baghdad and destroyed the Osirak reactor that Saddam Hussein was building. And then in 2007, destroyed the Al-Qibar reactor, as you mentioned. And that's just an important fact to keep in mind how Israel is the one country that has done this not once but twice. But what Israel calculated was because – now, again, the context I brought before, which was this: we're in the post-Second Lebanon War. The army is, is rebuilding itself. Syria back in 2007 is not the Syria we know in 2020. This isn't the Syria after nine right. years of civil war. This is a Syria with a larger military than Israel with hundreds of Scud missiles capable of reaching any point inside the state of Israel. This is a Syria with hundreds of tons of chemical and biological weapons. This is before they gave them up, back in most of them at least in 2013. Uh, This is a, 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 a very strong, violent, aggressive adversary of the state of Israel. And the potential for a war with Syria... Could potentially be devastating for Israel. The IDF at the time estimated that after attacking the nuclear reactor, there was at least a 50% chance that war, an all out war, not with a small time guerrilla group in Lebanon or Hamas in Gaza, a war between two conventional armies, Israel and Syria, there was at least a 50% chance that it would break out after Israel destroyed the nuclear reactor. Because this was Assad's, clearly Assad's prized possession. This was his secret. But what Israel discovered also, while it was gathering intelligence after the initial discovery on this laptop computer, was that Assad was keeping it a secret from his cabinet, was keeping the existence of the reactor a secret from his defense minister, his chief of staff. Only a handful of people knew about it. There, the reason he was keeping it a secret was because it was probably unlikely that Syria, as a country and a government, would support such a move. It was... A, a ton of money being poured into this, and it set Syria up for what eventually happened, which is Israel stopping it. Right. But what Israel calculated was it came up with this concept called the uh, um, almost like the deniability zone, which basically, because so many few so few people in Syria knew about the existence of the reactor, that if Israel destroyed it, but said nothing, stayed quiet, never said a word. Assad would prefer also to sweep it under the rug. And that's pretty much what happened. So for 10 years, Israel didn't say a word, never confirmed, never denied. Reports came out here and there. But the story in its entirety was never told. And that's also what fascinated me about the book and about this story, is A, you have an amazing story of political courage, of decision-making, of military might, but also this intrigue of why the quiet, why did no one speak? Why we're, why were we silent for so long? Just added a whole other dimension to what made this story so compelling.
0: Okay, well, that makes sense. And why did they, why did Israel decide to make it public now, or recently? Well,
1: it's not Israel that decided to make it public, right? As you know, In Israel, there's something called the military censor. The military censor has the right to ban publication of a a story or a secret that it views to be a potential harm to national security. For years, Israel had banned publication from Israeli sources about the uh, nuclear reactor and the operation that led to its destruction. But over the years, American sources were speaking about it infrequently. Little tidbits here and there when I started working on this book in uh, two thousand and seventeen i 'm sorry in two thousand and sixteen my my original idea was that I would start gathering information, doing research ahead of articles for the Jerusalem Post. I thought that maybe i 'd write a couple of columns about this uh, ahead of the ten year anniversary in September of two thousand and seventeen and because of the censorship that was still in place, one of the, the the workarounds would be to interview just foreign sources. So for months, I only spoke, and I would, you know, because of my day job, I can't invest full time into these things. But I'd okay, I'd set up interviews, and maybe once a week, I would get on the phone and talk to a, someone in America, or I, w- I travel there frequently, so. I would meet people when in Washington and New York who were relevant back in 2007 and were working in the Bush administration, whether in the CIA, in the Pentagon, at State Department, or in the White House, in the National Security Council. And at some point after interviewing maybe a dozen American officials, I said, this is much greater than a uh, a news story. This is There's a book here that has to be told because there were so many new angles that were coming up during my conversations with these people. And then I started reaching out to Israeli sources, although knowing that it would be hard to tell their story because of the censorship. So I actually did something that was, um, that is unusual. I don't know that it's done frequently or often, but I went to meet with the censor. And I, in past, I've written two books before this one. I wrote the book and I submitted the book and then got back the responses but this time, I decided to go meet with them ahead of time. I felt like I was going down something of a rabbit hole, and I wanted to see if they were going to say to Miyako, "There's no way that we're ever going to let this out. You're wasting your time. We we strongly recommend you don't do it." I wanted to gauge their response, and I was surprised they didn't say they didn't give me a green light and they didn't give me a red light. They said to me, "Our recommendation would be continue working. We're constantly reviewing." the ban that we have in place. And I kind of saw that as a yellow light of sorts. And I continued working. And by the time I finished and submitted the book, some parts were actually taken out. The ban was still in place, but they, I think a combination of the time that had passed my book landing on their table at the time, Ehud Olmert wanted to publish a memoir. His book had been submitted. I think everything together, uh, contributed to their decision that they could no longer keep this ban in place, that there were too many factors already that they had to lift the ban.
0: Now you mentioned the role of North Korea in building that nuclear reactor. Uh, If I have my administrations right, uh, North Korea was building Syrians uh, nuclear reactor at the same time as it was negotiating with the Bush administration in America about dismantling its own nuclear facilities. What price did North Korea pay for uh, committing basically the uh, the greatest known crime of nuclear proliferation to date?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the greatest act of nuclear proliferation, definitely by a state actor. Uh, we know of A.Q. Khan, who was a rogue Pakistani scientist who sold technology and Help the Iranians and the Libyans, but this is a state that is that is building another nuclear reactor for another state, which is which is was unheard of until this this, this happened. And Israel discovered this. America didn't know about it. No one in the world knew about this. Uh, and you're 100 percent right that this was happening at a time that the six-party talks, as they were known, were taking place. And these were the the, the talks that were going on between North Korea. And uh, the United States, the Chinese, the, uh, the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, Russia was at the table, all in an effort to get the North Koreans to dismantle their own nu- rogue nuclear program. And at the same time that they're negotiating, supposedly, allegedly, in good faith, they're committing the greatest act of nuclear proliferation known to man. And that goes to show, and that, that's telling of what the world really has and what they're facing in North Korea. But you asked about the price they paid. Sadly, there was no price. Not only was there no price, but when the reactor was finally destroyed and American officials went and met with North Korean officials in, in, in Beijing and China, they showed them the, those original photos of the nuclear reactor that the Mossad had discovered in Vienna back in the previous march. And just as they were taken out, they were put back away. Not only that, but several months later in 2008, President George W. Bush and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice decided to lift North Korea from or remove North Korea from the list of state sponsors of terrorism that America kept, which enabled sanctions to stay in place. It was only put back. They were put back on the list by President um, Trump when he came into office in 2016 sorry 2017 so it it, not only did not pay a price they were somewhat rewarded and that's why when you look at what happened after trump after bush's presidency comes to an end in 2008 and obama barack obama takes over as president from 09 till 17 they go ahead and test another five to six nuclear weapons after previously they attested only one in October of 2006. So that just, that, to tell you that one has to do with the other, I don't know. But they learned a bad lesson with what happened in Syria. They learned that they could proliferate nuclear technology, build a nuclear reactor for another rogue state sponsor of terrorism, Syria, and that they, they, they get nothing, not even a slap on the wrist. And then they go ahead and test five, six more nuclear weapons. Why
0: not? Yeah, why not if there are no consequences? Now, why, why is it so hard to know that a country is building nuclear facilities? It seems like a very major project uh, that should be visible in a thousand different ways with all the satellites and other things that are around. Israel, Israeli intelligence was accurate back in Iraq in 1981, and that enabled them to destroy uh, the Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor. Uh, and Israel did pay a price for doing that on the international stage, uh, but it was great that they did it. Uh, but then in by 2007, and even more, Israel didn't know about Libya's nuclear program until Gaddafi uh, announced that it was being dismantled.
1: True. And the reason that it's so difficult is because a lot of this can be done uh, hidden from the public eye. There is, you know, we, it, the world at the time knew about Iraq's nuclear reactor, right? It was something that it was a project that had started many years before. There was French involvement. There was Russian involvement. Uh, the world knew that they were building a nuclear reactor. It was above ground. It looked like a nuclear reactor. In Iran, we also have known for years that they have a nuclear program. But it was believed to be a civil, civilian nuclear program, not to necessarily have a military dimension. Syria had a nuclear reactor, a research reactor. Got it sometime in the mid-90s from China. Had a staff of maybe a dozen, 13 people. Very small, nothing significant. Most, Many countries have reactors for research capabilities or purposes but when you a military dimension is a whole different ball game and and like what Syria was trying to do we had al-kibar which was near the Euphrates in an air region known as Zor in the desert it had it built the building of this nuclear reactor not like a nuclear reactor it didn't, it didn't have the classic you know you think of a nuclear reactor you think of a dome or you think of a uh, of, of of big smokestacks. It didn't have any of that. It was hidden behind what looked like some innocent building that was no different than any other kind of fortress or, or, or old Ottoman-style fortress that you would have found throughout the Syrian desert. There were no military positions nearby. There were no anti-aircraft systems or air defense systems. So it looked like something strange. Why is this in the middle of nowhere? But it didn't look necessarily suspicious with Libya as an example, also there. Libya was not doing anything in an overt way. It was all hidden from the public eye. And I think that what Israel learned from these two experiences, Libya as well as Syria, is we need a little humility. Is that what Israel thinks it does know, it might not know. And um, the, the, the disarmament of Libya, which is when Israel basically discovered that the, Libya had a nuclear program was when in 2004, right? Suddenly, there's an announcement that they had reached a deal with the with with Britain and and the United States. Uh, came as a big surprise to Israel. and Then, just a couple years later, the big surprise of Syria. So it's 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 clear that even with Israel's amazing intelligence capabilities for everything it does know, there's possibly a lot it doesn't know.
0: And uh is what you described also the reason why the uh International Atomic Energy Commission is less than effective in detecting nuclear activity? It's
1: it's not it's it's not something that can be relied on solely as the uh as the player that will make sure and and and, and ensure, let's say, that all of the world treaties and agreements are not violated. Uh, many of the reports that the IAEA comes out with are, uh, are are based on intelligence information that's given to them by member states, like Israel, like the United States, like the French, like the Brits, whoever it might be. Uh, their capability also of enforcement is limited, right? If a country like Iran, for example, decides not to allow inspectors into their facilities, there's not much they can do. So it can go to the Security Council, and then they can debate it, and they can maybe impose sanctions, or maybe not, or maybe it'll be vetoed, or maybe it won't. It's not necessarily the international community cannot be solely relied on when your existence as a nation is on the line. And I think that that's the lesson that Israel has learned, and it's also the lesson that Israel has taught the world is that when it comes to Israel's existence, it will not rely on the international community to get the job done. With regards to Al-Kibar, in the book I tell the story of how Israel brings this intelligence to the Americans, shares it with the Bush administration, and to make a long story short, Bush gets back after months of internal deliberations and debates within the White House and says, I recommend a diplomatic option. We'll take it to the IAEA. We'll go to the UN Security Council. We'll impose sanctions if they don't dismantle it. And then if they still don't dismantle it, we'll we'll, we'll hit them with military action. And Israel said, this is unacceptable. There's only one solution, and that is the immediate destruction of this nuclear reactor. And if you won't do it, we're going to do it. And that's what Israel did. Because at the end, when it comes to your existence, you can't rely on anyone. You can only rely on yourself. And I think That's the unique story of Israel. We have relationships as a country with many nations and countries around the world. We have alliances, one that's unparalleled with the United States. But at the end of the day, the lesson you walk away with from this story is that you can't outsource your, your, your security. You can't outsource your continued survival.
0: Certainly not. And you make the point uh, very well in the book that, uh, the mossad even though they are have a sterling reputation on the whole uh, they also can't be perfect uh, spying is a very dicey occupation uh, the su- su- excuse me the spymaster supreme mayor dagan he had more than the usual inspiration for his work they they're all dedicated but he had something special Tell us about his background and the powerful photograph that hung in his office.
1: So Mayor Dagan, who's no longer alive, passed away a couple of years ago, um, was at the time the head of the Mossad. And he, uh, he was the, one of the architects behind the discovery of this nuclear reactor and the operation to then destroy it. The, inspiration i don't know if it was necessarily this was the sole inspiration but the in his office he had a photo that was hanging of uh of an old jewish man with a tallit over his head and uh, was being beaten by nazis back during the holocaust world war 2 a photo that happened to be taken and it happened to be his grandfather and he would tell people who would come to his office where this picture would hang in Mossad headquarters is that he would just need to look at that picture to remind himself why he is in the position and what his job is and why he has to do what he has to do to ensure that such a Holocaust or such an attempt to eradicate and murder so many Jews is net, can never be allowed to happen again. And I think that for many Israelis, the, pop, the prospect of Syria getting its hands on nuclear weapons was viewed as a potential second Holocaust that could happen. And that's why it had to be stopped. So I think for the Jewish people, in general, the, the Holocaust still very much features prominently in, uh, in thinking and strategic considerations, because, while well, yes, it took place, you know, Auschwitz was, just, was liberated just 75 years ago. That's not that long ago when you think about the arc of history. Uh, and you look at throughout the world and the region today. And the world is is still a scary and dangerous place where there are still enemies that call for the destruction of, of Israel. We just ran a story the other day where a top Iranian says our objective is to raise Tel Aviv, right? To destroy Tel Aviv. I mean, you know, when you think of that rhetoric combined with the capability that could allow them to do that, that's a scary formula. And and, and Israel doesn't have the strategic depth. Or the luxury to 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 allow something like that to potentially take place.
0: And when you look what's happening in uh, Israel's neighbors, neighboring countries, uh, let's take Syria, uh, which is uh, a basket case and uh, and a playground for any number of vested interests to use their destructive capacity. Bashar al-Assad himself. Used chemical weapons against his own people, barrel bombing uh, various terrorist groups. Uh, it, it's a complete mess. What would have happened had there had Syria had a nuclear possibility? Had Israel not destroyed it in two thousand seven? It's
1: a scary thought. Uh, I don't know, right? Because as we do know, they used those. They used, as you mentioned, barrel bombs and chemical weapons and chlorine and who knows what else against uh, sarin gas, right, against their own people. Now imagine they had a nuclear weapon and Israel hadn't stopped them, hadn't stopped Syria. Now imagine even, it's do- even before that. It's a doomsday day. scenario. First of all, he yeah. could have used it against his yeah. own people. He could have used it against another country. But even before you get there. In 2014, three years into the civil war in Syria, the region where the nuclear reactor was being built was conquered by ISIS. Now imagine that ISIS, that the nuclear reactor was still standing. And ISIS got their hands on plutonium and had the ability to create either a dirty bomb or a nuclear warhead or who knows what. Now, now, Now think about that. I shudder when I think of that. The, the, the scope of the threat that ISIS could have posed to the entire world. Israel didn't save itself when it destroyed that nuclear reactor. Israel saved the world to a large
0: extent. Absolutely, and certainly the region. Right. Uh, now, getting back to the story of what happened in Shadow Strike, one thing you describe Uh, is that's quite interesting is the interactions among diplomats and military experts of different countries. And you very strongly and well make the point that uh, what they can do and how things work among them is very dependent on their human relationships and on their personalities. Uh, Tell us a little about the relative importance of data or facts and human relationships or trust in international affairs?
1: It's a good question. It's one that I don't even really know, uh, because I know what I know, which is what happened. I have the facts of of the story. I know the decisions that were taken. But at the end of the day, even when you interview someone and you speak with them, and they tell you and they recall for you. When I spoke to Olmert, when I spoke to the vice president at the time, Dick Cheney, when I spoke to, to the chief of staff or to the head of the CIA, whoever it was, they all gave me their view. They all told me how they understood and how they analyzed, and what brought them to the decisions that they made. But at the end of the day, we don't know what, what baggage, if I could call it that, they, they bring to the table, right? Like we knew at the time that Ehud Olmert was facing, was under police investigation. We knew that people were trying, that there were demonstrations for him and calls for him to step down. Did that contribute to his decision to attack? Would someone else who had been in that position, who didn't have a police investigation, who didn't have calls for his resignation, maybe they would have acted differently? Menachem Begin, when he bombed the Osirak reactor in 1981, his parents were murdered by Nazis. He later told how he, 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 he thought of them as the planes were flying the distance to, to destroy Saddam Hussein's Did, was he, had he Had that not happened to his family, would he have acted in the same way? It's, these are questions we can never know the full answer to. We can hypothesize. We can guess. But I also think that there, in these stories we have a policy that is set. And understanding that there are certain lines that cannot be crossed. And that even if another prime minister who doesn't carry that baggage, who doesn't come with that personality, who doesn't have uh, that that, that historical background, might still make a similar decision. But it's impossible, really, at the end of the day to know, right? Because there's so many factors. I remember intelligence officials even saying to me, I, I write this in the book. Of when Israel destroys the reactor and, 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 and they hope you know there's still that chance that war might break out, but they, they they gamble that because that because of what I spoke about before the deniability zone, but how do you know how Assad went to sleep that night? Did he have an argument with with his son or his wife? Was he upset about something else? Did someone bother him did did would he see this as a slap in the face in a way that had never happened it's, imp- it's always going to be a gamble, but that's the real test of leadership.
0: That's, that's the true test. And, uh, yes, and serendipity has a lot to do with it as well. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Begin, uh, Begin and his own point of view. Uh, what is the Begin Doctrine, and why does it carry so much weight in the Israeli military?
1: Well, the, the Begin Doctrine, as it's become coined, the phrase, is basically this idea that Israel cannot allow an enemy to obtain a nuclear capability. Begin is known as the Begin Doctrine because he was the Prime Minister in 1981 when Saddam's reactor was destroyed. And he later said in interviews that every Prime Minister who comes after me will know that this is now the line that's kind of set in the sand. Omer reinforced that idea. With Iran, we've yet to see that play out. Israel has not taken military action to stop the Iranians. And I don't know that it will. It might. It might not. But it might not have to. depends how this whole crisis within plays out. But I think that the, the concept is is that if you have a country that has a nuclear capability and openly calls for your destruction, that is something that Israel cannot allow. Take Pakistan as an example. It's a country that's a Muslim state that has a nuclear capability. How come Israel doesn't attack Pakistan? I think there's two reasons. One, there's a limit to what Israel can do. can't go around the world attacking countries everywhere and whenever it wants and b is pakistan might be an islamic state but it's not openly calling to destroy the state of israel and there are other superpowers like the americans that are involved in keeping the lid on pakistan's nuclear program but ultimately israel will be able to do what it will be able to do it'll be able to deal with the threats that are close to it and that's what you've seen with Iraq, with Syria, two countries building a capability that have called to destroy Israel. Saddam Hussein fired over 30 Scud missiles into Israel during the first Gulf War in 1991. Now imagine his nuclear program had not been destroyed in 1981. Syria is a country we fought devastating wars with in 1948, in the Six Day War, 1973, and went on Yom Kippur. They surprised and invaded Israel. The prospect of another war with Syria is something that definitely existed at the time. So the same applies to the Iranians, and that's why I would say, at least, what you have in this book is something of a blueprint for what might need to happen one day when it comes to Iran's nuclear
0: program. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated now, I imagine, than even in 2007.
1: Everything is much more complicated, but it's also the... The, the idea, even if it's complicated, the idea that Israel has shown the world that it doesn't put its money where its mouth is, it put, puts its military where its mouth is. And, and, you know, does that help? I think that creates a deterrent. Is that a deterrent that was enough to get the Iranians to recalculate? No. They still are pursuing what they're pursuing. But I think that they do know that if ev- all else fails... Israel has shown that it will take it will go to the lengths to the distance that's needed to uh, to try to neutralize a threat that it views to be of an existential nature. And 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 that's something that even as complicated as Iran's nuclear program is, how scattered it is, how many facilities it is, how reinforced and buried underground they might be. Israel will not just sit back on the sidelines and allow them to get their nuclear program, nuclear capability, and weapons.
0: That's clear, yeah. Um, it, you introduce your readers to many incredibly heroic and dedicated professionals, uh, such as Dagan, Ivry, Rafiatan in Israel, Elliot Cohn, and Michael Hayden in America in the whole cast of characters, as you learn more and more about them, is there anyone whose character and actions you find impressive in an extraordinary way? You know,
1: I think the person who I was most surprised with was Ehud Olmert, who was the prime minister at the time. I really think that to some extent, the story is also a story about him and he is, I think the main character, because for a number of reasons. First of all, it was a big decision to, to, to send your military to take out a nuclear reactor and risk another war so soon after what had just been a bad war. In addition to that, he, he made the decision, unlike what Begin did in 81, to share this intelligence and bring this information to George W. Bush, the president, and ask him to deal with the nuclear reactor. And the president comes back to him and says, I, I have a plan for how, how to take care of it. And his plan was, to, as I mentioned before, this diplomatic track. But Olmert easily could have said, OK, I'm going with the president of the United States. Right? He's my friend. He's my ally. He says he's got this covered. I could easily just go with him. Why would I want to risk a war? I have the president of the United States who said he's on top of it. But he decided to say no to the president of the United States, to stand up to him. And that could have led to a crisis, an unparalleled crisis, unprecedented one between Israel and the United States. And that relationship, as we all know, the alliance between Israel and the U.S., is fundamental for Israel's military and diplomatic power and projection of power. So to run that risk of saying an unequivocal no to a U.S. president, that takes a lot of chutzpah. And that, 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 that's something that, that I don't know, as you asked me before, would everyone have done the same thing? I don't know. And then the third piece of what he did, or part of what he did, which, I, which really surprised me, and it surprised me more today than it did at, back in, at the time when it all happened, because of now I can actually compare him with current leaders. So I, I look at his position. Where he was back in 2007, he was a prime minister to some extent under siege. He had a commission of inquiry that was set up to investigate the war, which placed the blame for the Lebanon war partially on his shoulders, but in a big way. He had calls from large swaths of the Israeli society calling for him to step down and resign. The police were investigating him. It had yet to uh, come into an indictment but he was under multiple police investigations. And he easily could have carried out the strike and said, and then announced it, publicized it, tried to take political credit for it. Now I say because today I look at the leaders that we have on both sides of the Atlantic here in Israel and in the United States, also two leaders to somewhat under political and, and, and legal siege, President Trump was recently uh, acquitted from his impeachment process, but Prime Minister Netanyahu is, has a trial that's about to begin in a couple of months. And I wonder, and I wonder and I don't know, but I wonder if those two men were in his shoes and they carried out a similar operation with the challenges that they face. And in this era of populism that we now live in, that we spoke about before, would they have managed to stay quiet for so long? And I think that that, 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 that decision by Olmert to remain silent showed an understanding that there's something much greater than his own personal gain and his own personal welfare. Because at so many different points along the way, when he, he stepped down as prime minister, he could have said, are you kidding me? You're, you want me to resign? Look what I saved you all. When he gets indicted, he could have said, are you kidding me? You know what I did when his trial starts? When he gets convicted, when he gets sentenced, when he walks into jail, when he walks out of jail, but at no point does he say anything. And that is, I think, in my eyes, because maybe because I've gotten to know so many politicians over the years in my day job as editor of a newspaper, I've become maybe too cynical. But I've seen the way politicians use security-related matters for political gain. And that 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 silence, that that vow of, of of staying quiet, has always impressed me.
0: It is very honorable. It really is, and uh, yes, it seems to be increasingly rare to put the national good over one's own personal agenda. So I'm glad you put that in. Your your book reads like a thriller and is very well-researched and, uh, and the facts are substantiated, how do you manage to do this? Because our, our, our listeners both are great readers, but many of them are also writers, in trying to do that which you accomplished, that is, tell the facts and make it a readable story. Is there a secret you can share? It's a great question. I get asked
1: often. I I can't say that going into writing this book, I knew it was going to read like a thriller, or I knew that 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 it would come out with suspense and 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 such color. I, I had a I had a formula that I wanted to use that I'd studied. I, I took a course um, at Harvard for a semester in narrative nonfiction writing. And if I if I show you uh stories or articles or even my my first book if you were to read my first book and compare it to my last book it's completely the quality of writing just improves. And I think that the, the the secret is first of all you you want to try to bring to pull in the reader. You want to create a suspense and attention in your writing that will draw in the reader and keep them captivated and, and, and want them to just keep on turning that, that page. But I'll also say is that, and, 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 and I see that as I write more and more and more, I, I, I get better at it. I've I learned how to write on the job. My first job in journalism about 20 years ago, I did not know how to write news. I was taught how to write news. I call, I call it. It's like it's an acquired skill. It's like, you know, learning to appreciate coffee or wine. Right. Nowadays I wrote, Nowadays, I rely a lot on coffee, but um, the, the you can become better. Now, Probably there are people who will be better, people who will be worse. You know, I read some writers, and I'm blown away by how eloquent they are and how they're able to tell stories, and I say, wow, I wish I could be like that. But I also think I, – I, I just want to add two other points to it. One is when I built out the story and I created the outline, um, it, it was different than the way it ultimately came out. And 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 literally, you know, you've watched movies and read stories and heard about people who wake up one night in a cold sweat and realize that something's wrong. I I had that with this book. I literally had that with this book. I woke up one night in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. And I realized, oh, my God, it's, it's built wrong. It's structured wrong. It's got to be completely different. I had all the pieces, but I had to completely. I spent a week just restructuring the entire story. So. I also – one other thing I'll tell people is don't be bogged down by getting the outline right immediately at the outset of whatever project you're working on. Let it, let it come to you because I think it will come to you. And then the third thing I'll say is that the advantage I've discovered of writing nonfiction is that the story has a, a frame. It has clear, oh, pretty, pretty clearly defined borders. It, there's where it starts, and you could always give a little more historical context or whatever, and then where it ends, and then the repercussions and the lessons, etc. Fiction scares me, and I don't write fiction, but fiction scares me because fiction is really uh, it's all in your brain, it's all your imagination, it's wherever you want to go. So where do you start? Where do you end? Where do you, how, where do you go with that story? So I take my hat off to fiction writers and I say, wow, how do you do that? How do you build that frame? And I, that, that impresses me. So, you know, we all have our skill sets, We all have our capabilities. We all have our comfort zone and we all have what scares us. But, but I think that, you know, it's about, it's about challenging yourself. It's about bringing yourself to, to, Try something new to to strive to be better in your writing.
0: Well, that's really helpful and very honest. And I I see that we've taken up a great deal of your time, and I know you're a very busy man. Uh, but before I let you go, tell us something about what you're working on now.
1: Well, we kind of touched upon that. Uh, you know, I, I people who've read the book have. Uh, have suggested to me, wow, it's, it's captivating, it's, it's suspense, it reads like fiction, maybe you should try fiction. So I've played with those ideas a little. But as I just said before, it scares me, I'll be honest about it. Uh, but I, I, would say that I would say two things. One is that I have my hands full running a daily newspaper and website. In this country, Israel is, uh, is, is a crazy hyper speed and intensity and cycle, the news cycle is, is, is insane. And as you know, we're now on the verge of a third election, and who knows what will come after that. So that, that definitely is enough to keep multiple people busy. But I, I, I've, I've, I've written now three books in the last um, almost decade. And I do it because I feel that I need to for my, for my soul to, to, to be able to tell a story in a deeper way, in a, in a wider way. And that there are stories that that require that they need to be told like that, and and, and it, it comes from a, it comes like you could throw me ten ideas, but I need to feel the passion inside. I need to feel that drive to be able to because I have to carve out the time to do it, and that'll come at the expense of other things, and it will be meaning adding more time to my already busy plate, full plate. So so I have to really want it. I have to feel the the uh, the the passion. And there's a couple ideas that I'm playing with right now. One of them is another military nonfiction idea, Um, and another one is a is a story that's a little different, but also nonfiction, but talking a little about Israel, where where it's come, where it's potentially going, Uh, and I'm working on it. So maybe I'll have some news in 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 a few months of uh, of what I've decided and and if there's something here to talk about.
0: Well, I'll stay tuned and look forward to what emerges. Yaakov, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate you fitting us into your schedule. Uh, So thank you very much, and good luck going forward. Thank you for having me on the
1: show. Thank you.
0: And thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Bye-bye now.